You are listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help. Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones unstuck. Welcome back to the Scott H. Silverman Happy Hour. This is Michael Glenn Moore. I am Scott's co-host. Today, Scott, we have another great guest. (laughs) I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself, Scott, and uh, give out your phone numbers and whatever else you need to do, website. And introduce Lisa. Okay, great. Well, Michael, uh, thanks for getting up with us. <laughs> anyway, well, you know, happy, uh, happy, happy hour to everybody. This is Scott H. Silverman. My phone number is uh, 619-993-2738. You can always reach me at uh, yourcrisiscoach.com. And uh, I'm going to introduce Lisa in just a minute, but I want to take 30 seconds uh, just a moment of silence for, you know, what's happened with George Floyd, what's going on with our country right now, and just to honor the families and those who are suffering, uh, and unfortunately, some of those who will continue to suffer until they get the appropriate level of help, which we're going to talk about today. So we'll just take 30 seconds, moment of silence to to honor those who uh, have been impacted so severely by what's happened most recently. All right. Welcome back. Yeah, Scott H. Silverman, Scott, your happy hour. Yeah, that was uh, that was just 30 seconds. Can you imagine eight minutes, which was how long that officer kneeled on, on uh, Mr. Uh, Floyd's neck? Uh, oh, yeah. they oh, It's it's scary, buddy. You know, and, and it just I, it, they say right now globally what's going on. You know, and Michael, you and I usually don't like to talk about the things that are kind of horrible in our world because we want to stay on the positive side of being a resource and let people know there's faith and hope. But, you know, if you don't, if you, if you don't see what's going on right now and take it in and process it, um, you, you know, we're never going to create systemic change. And that's one of the things that, you know, Lisa and I are going to talk about today is how do we create systemic change with some of the issues that have gone on so long, uh, especially when we know there's help and, and, and hope out there. So you're absolutely right. And then watching all the demonstrations, I mean, we have it here in our community in San Diego, and it, it's touched the world. And the world right now is, uh, you know, really having an awakening. And I, I hope it turns out to be a path of real creative uh, and systemic change, because God knows we could certainly use it. So anyway, Mike, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but um, was there something else you wanted to add to that? No, I just wanted to bring up the the time difference. You know, yeah. you know thirty thirty seconds is, is seems like a long time, but eight minutes is is you know that's hours considering. Oh yeah, oh 
Oh yeah, and 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 for for a life, and it'll be a lifetime for some of these family members who are close to it, and those who witnessed what's going on, or you know, and unfortunately we're, we're cycling it on the news right now, and you're seeing it every you know every 15 minutes on some channels. Anyway, with on a positive note today, though, um, Lisa Fredrickson is here today, and Lisa is somebody who I've followed her path and her career in a way that's really it baffles me that the attraction I have to what she does. And when you hear her today and you hear what she talks about, you'll understand why. I mean, I'm on the, you know, a recovering addict side. I'm on the, how do we get people in the treatment side? And there's so much about the family that doesn't get discussed. And there's so much about the family that just isn't brought forward, in my opinion, in treatment. And when I first met Lisa, gosh, it's been a long time now. Um, she was writing about, and if I'm not mistaken, and I have some notes here, but I'm going to let her tell you, you know, she's she's north of about, I think, what, 10, 12 books now. She writes a blog. She has a website. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a consultant. And she's the founder of Breaking the Cycles, by the way, dot com. That's how you reach her. And I know she's got a lot of free time because if she's only working 23 hours a day, there's an hour free every day that she can plug into. And Lisa has so much information, so much working knowledge, so much practical experience. I don't think there's anybody else, in my opinion, on the planet that knows uh, as much about her topics that she covers as anybody because her level of interest and passion, I don't think she's slept in 12 years. I don't think she's left the house. I know that she is somebody who takes phone calls and you know, I'm noticing on the notes here, 39 years. So she started when she was 11 and she just continues to pound away. And she's relentless with her research and her knowledge base on what needs to be done to help others. So with that, I'm going to let Lisa kind of add to some things I'm sure I've forgotten that she'd like our listeners to know about, because at the end of the day, if you Google who has the most knowledge about helping families who, you know, who's not necessarily a psychiatrist or, or, or psychologist or, you know, clinical person, but someone who has just done so much, you know, deep diving into getting information and sharing it freely with as many people that will read and listen. So, Lisa, I, you owe me nothing from that introduction, and I hope I, I didn't miss anything. But, Lisa, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about yourself, because I know there's some things I'm sure I've missed. Gosh, Scott, thank you. That was just an amazing introduction. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. It's all true. And it's all true. And I believe every every single word I said. <laughs> so to your point, I have been studying the latest or the emerging and now latest research on uh, substance use disorder. My particular focus, focus has been alcohol use disorders um, because of my own personal experiences with uh, various loved ones who had either mild, moderate, or severe uh, drinking problems or alcohol use disorders. And so I got into trying to figure this out back in 2003 when one of them entered a residential treatment program for alcoholism. And that's when I was plunged into this world of being called an enabler and a codependent and told it was a disease. And I really balked at that one because I had had eating disorders for 12 years uh, from the age of 16 to 28. And had learned to re-eat. And so in my view, they could learn to re-drink or slow how much they drank um, or even stop the way I had succeeded. But 
by that time, I was really at my wit's end. I was just about to turn 50, and there was my world had been reduced to rigid absolutes, truth or lie, black or white, you're with me or you're not. And so I just decided to do what the family therapist told me to do, and I was fortunate to have just an amazing, amazing person. I uh, spent three years doing cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist who specialized in the family side of substance use disorder. I also attended Al-Anon, and then I do what I do, which is study the research. I had been speaking in the civil rights and women's rights movements and writing books in that area and just shifted it all to trying to understand why, what this is, and, um, and then became devoted to helping the families. That's awesome. You know, before we continue on, I have a testimonial I hear. I think I saw a thousand of them on your website. I'm going to read I'm going to read one that just kind of stood out when I went to print. And uh, this is from someone with initials MR. And it says, I found your website nine months ago. I'm now starting to see my life change because of you, your books and website. It took me almost six months to start seeing the light. I knew I had to figure out how I had changed due to the years of second secondhand drinking. Which, by the way, I'd never heard that phrase until I heard you say it. Uh, secondhand drinking I've experienced. Although I still live with an active alcoholic, I'm starting to change and I feel lightness I haven't felt in years. I didn't realize I was carrying this wet blanket all this time through the perspective I gained from your books, website, etc. Corners of that blanket are lifting. I did not realize the, the weight of SHD until until I had it on my own well-being. Thank you for all the work you've done on this very painful family disease your work is helping to change one family one day at a time that's a testimonial on your website when people are willing to write something like that and be totally candid and honest about it it's just um it's what's well, it's an intimate pat on the back and it's a virtual hug that i think all of us could use so let's let's get right into it to honor our time today and gosh we were late today because Michael slept in. I had technical problems, and uh, Lisa's been very gracious to to hang in there with us because I, I really want to get this content out there, especially with what's going on with people being at home, going through you know this you know incubation period of learning how to live inside, and there's no real tools for what we've all experienced. So uh, I think what you do, Lisa, and what you teach is probably more relevant now and more topical than it ever has been because the average person who may have suffered before, has it's all amplified now because they've been at home and they haven't had the mechanisms they have without with their normal routine. And I think our new normal is going to dictate that we have to change the way we walk and talk and breathe and, and interact with others and socialize and go to work and move around the planet. So talk to us about what now, you know, one of the questions, you know, when your loved one, you know, drinks too much, what do you want to tell people? And I'm sure everyone who had an issue has got an issue that's really amplified now. And if you were just a abuser, you could be, you know, alcoholic. And if you were somebody who just drank a little bit, if you're stuck at home, you're going to drink more. So when a loved one starts to drink too much, what do you tell people? Well, um, you're absolutely right. The the increase, I've been doing this work now for about well over 16 years, and the increase in calls since the stay-at-home orders has been, I just, it's, it's stunned me. There have been so many, because as you said, I do offer free uh, phone calls 
for about an hour to people who are finding my site or finding some of my books and they want to talk further about their own situation. So that increase in calls has just been significant. And um, it, it can be their loved one has relapsed or they found hidden bottles or they're uh, just being in that uh, constant environment of where they have been. They're now just at their wit's end. They're ready. They can't take it anymore, but they don't know what to do now, how to talk to their loved one. It's it's just become because, as you said, people are drinking more. And, and a lot of it is driven by the stress of what's happening now. There is just so much stress. Um, and that stress hammers our stress response, which is fight or flight. And one of the things that soothes that can be a substance like alcohol because it works on the pleasure pathways. So um, it's important to understand that each person who has an alcohol, I'm speaking to alcohol today, but other drug use disorder also applies, affects about nine, five other people. And these are the moms and the dads and the husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and children and grandchildren and grandparents. And then they in turn affect other people. You're married to the spouse of a sibling who has alcohol use disorder. Um, it's, it's, it's a significant reach. The estimates are in America, it's roughly 80 million. And around the world, that's hundreds of millions more. And um, and I get calls from around the world, Iceland, uh, the UK. Uh, it's um, uh, well, I'll stop on that. But um, yes, so there's a huge need to have this information and to understand what it's about and how you can talk about it and, and where you can find the help you need without judgment because we just don't understand typically drinking problems. And so we always think they don't want it badly enough or they're uh, somehow weak-willed or um, somehow can just stop. And why don't they? You know, that's that's a great way of, of setting the table for, for moving forward. And you mentioned it in your comments about the, the half-empty bottles. And my next question here, you know, and look, you and I have spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks, probably more than we have in the last year, trying to figure out how do we really funnel in some content right now that would be uh, topical and helpful for people. So talk a little bit about, you know, the, the hidden half-empty bottles and then should I dump them out? But before you go, I want to tell a quick story. Uh, that I heard once about this uh, alcoholic uh, gentleman and his family, and he was trying to quit, and his family really wanted to quit. He had young children. So he was hiding his booze. One day his wife did a mini intervention, and I'd read about this, and his bottles were everywhere from the toilet to, to, you know, to the inside the case of the toilet, hidden in you know the cupboards outside the trunk of his car, the garage. And one day the family just sat down. The family did a mini intervention and said, look, you've got to stop doing this. You have to stop drinking. And he says, I'll do everything I can. So within a week, you know, they talked about working on the sprinklers in the backyard. And he goes, I'm going to start working. I'm going to do that job. And every day he went out in the afternoon and, and he was took a nap and he was, you know, really chill and quiet. And, you know, the kids were asking, Mom, Dad's really. And they found out after about two weeks that he actually had buried his booze in the ground. And he had a straw. And every time he went out to lay in the sun after working on the sprinklers, he laid down and he put his straw in the bottle. And that's how he finished, you know, his drinking career. And they finally caught him. And then he got into treatment. But wow. alcoholics, you know, as you know, and as we talk about uh, and, and drug addicts as well, people that are self-medicating, they'll do anything, mm -hmm. anything to get their drug of choice uh, to try to get, you know, into that state of mind that they think they need to be in. So let's go back to the, the, the question. 
what should I do when, when I have a family member, you know, should I dump them out or what? When they find booze and they know it's in the house and the person shouldn't be drinking. What do you tell families? So it, it's, it's unfortunately not just a yes or no answer. One of the things I urge people to do is back way down and try not to judge whether it's an alcoholic or alcohol abuse or, and there are other terms, as you well know, substance, alcohol use disorder, severe binge drinker, whatever. So just, we're just going to go with binge drinking, alcohol abuse and alcoholism. Um, but the, the question is very simple and it's, does, do you have a loved one or does your loved one's behaviors change when they drink? And if the answer is yes, then you say, well, what kinds of behaviors do they exhibit when they drink? Hiding bottles, for example. That is not a normal behavior. And so you start to differentiate between the person with the drinking problem and the person themselves. Because I have worked with so many people with alcohol and other drug use disorders, and they don't want this any more than the family member does. They have tried, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried. And their efforts fail, and then they beat themselves up. And, and so what I tell now people is that there is a very complex brain change that goes on when a person's drinking proceeds or uh, escalates from what they call normal to abuse to alcoholism. So sometimes the way to a family member to start to talk about it is to understand what's considered normal drinking. And that means the drinking that should not result in the drinking behaviors. And those behaviors are the verbal, physical, emotional abuse, passing out on the couch, having blackouts, driving while impaired. Sometimes it can be alcohol-involved domestic violence. You know, it's all the changes that occur when ethyl alcohol chemicals, which are what's in the alcoholic beverage, interrupt the brain, the brain cells normally talk to one another. They interrupt the chemical portion of what's called an electrochemical signaling process. And so when you interrupt that, you change the way the brain's normal messaging would get through. And then that's what comes out with slurred words, complete memory lapses, um, saying just horrible things or being very loving and attentive when drinking. And then the next morning looking at you like, what? And, and it's not necessarily and generally not the real person coming out. But it's more this idea of unplugged cells talking to one another because these these form like almost like a holiday light strands. And so when you have holiday light strands on a house in the in the, in the holiday time, excuse me, but um, you'll have strand plugged into strand plugged into strand to create a scene. And you've got a Christmas tree and Santa and his rain bear on the top and you've got candy canes lining the walkway well if suddenly lights go out in half the tree and santa's reindeers are um, go out and he's sitting up there alone on the sleigh and the candy canes a couple of those goes out you get a different scene so picture that's what's happening in the brain when the amount a person drinks exceeds the ability of that person's liver to get rid of it and so it's unplugging networks in the brain that control behavior Am I going on way too long with that one answer? <laughs> no, that, you know, this, this is your opportunity. And, you know, one of the things that we do at Happy Hour is we because, you know, and I by the way, I, I named the show Happy Hour because that's when I did a lot of my drinking. And, you know, when Michael heard, he goes, that's perfect. So but before we go further, will you do me a favor? Because sometimes people we did a little quick study and realized some not everyone listens to the podcast all the way to the end. Would you mind sharing your contact information and how people can reach you? Sure. My name is Lisa Fredrickson, and that's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-K-S-E-N. And my email is Lisa F, like Fredrickson, at breaking the cycles. And you need an S on the end of cycles.com. 
I can also be re well, it's best to just call, um, contact me via my email because then we can set up a phone call. I wanted to add something else to just not only know how it changes the way the brain cells talk to one another, but that idea of the way the body gets rid of these alcohol chemicals is only through enzymes in the liver. And it takes the liver about one hour to get rid of the chemicals in one standard drink. So a person drinking six beers, it's going to take six hours, even if they drank them all in two hours. And that's what causes that backup, if you will, that unplugging of neural networks that control, you know, behaviors and, and results in the, in the behaviors a person exhibits when they do drink too much. Right. And, and something you said that uh, I picked up on because uh, you mentioned that you take calls free and I always disclose whenever I can because I try to be transparent that free is my second favorite F word. So <laughs> if if, pe if people are listening to this, you know, you've got her information. And if you need to get to her, if you, you know, you forgot, call me and I'll get you connected. But, you know, uh, again, Lisa, I, I just want to thank you so much for all the great work you do. So let's move on to what was the next question I think I, I love because I talk about this all the time. Why do addicts and alcoholics lie, cheat and steal? So generally it is because of the way their brain's been changed by this particular disease. And, it, and so you see disease by its simplest definition is something that changes cells in a negative way. And when you change cells in a body organ, you change the health and function of that body organ. This one changes them in the brain. That's what makes it a brain disease and why a person ends up, you know, behaving the way they do. But there's two things that go into this disease. The first one is risk factors. So you have to drink more than what's called low risk limits, which for lemon, women is seven standard drinks in a week and men uh, 14 standard drinks in a week. And then there's a daily limit in that. But we can discuss that in a moment. But when you start to exceed those limits, binge drinking, alcohol abuse, you ch chemically and structurally change the brain, and that makes the brain vulnerable to the risk factors. All diseases have risk factors on why you develop them. The risk factors for alcoholism include genetics. That's about 50 to 60% of the problem. So you can look at your family of origin and you say, huh, well, my father and my great-grandmother and however all had a substance use disorder. Genetically, I probably am predisposed. And that doesn't mean there's a gene that's an alcohol gene, but it's a way that different, um, you know, we might hire different, different genetic differences, like how we have them for eye color, skin color, hair color, body type, for example. So genetics is one. Second one is childhood trauma, which is experience extremely stressful events or traumatic events before the age of 18 because of how it changes the way the brain wires and makes the brain especially vulnerable to stress. And that stress then becomes one can become one of the triggers. It's also what can cause anxiety, depression, migraine, stomach ailments. And that's that toxic stress connection and probably a whole program in and of itself. So so and then social environment, early use, drinking while the brain's going through some key developmental stages from around age 12 to 22 on average for girls and 24 on average for guys and having a mental illness. So if you because that's also a brain changer, that's a separate one in and of itself. And it's not uncommon for that mental illness to find the substance or the alcohol soothes the anxiety, depression, for example. So then the brain starts to map. Oh, wow, that makes us feel better. Let's do that. And it does it as quickly as a light switch when it's when it's practiced over and over. And what I mean by that mapping is 
we're born with the 100 billion brain cells, which is about what we have as adults, which means then all those cells connect, talking, talking, talking for everything we think, feel, say, and do over the course of our life, that they start to map the brain and its efficiency says, what are we doing all the time? Let's map those. Those will become our, our root behavior for that. And when we don't understand that mapping piece, we don't we miss a big opportunity to understand, you know, if you can wire it in, you can likely unwire it. So when they map around these risk factors, the, the substance becomes a soother. The other thing are the characteristics of this particular disease. It includes cravings. The drive to drink can become three to five times stronger than the drive to eat food when hungry because of where it works in the brain. So this is to your question, why did they lie? Because it, the brain now has taken over the, uh, the, um, the controls, if you will, and, and, and the other characteristics, by the way, are loss of control, um, uh, physical dependence, and then tolerance. You need more and more and more because of the changes in the brain in order to get that initial feel-good feeling. So the brain is like, whatever we need, we're going to make sure you get it. Don't worry. We're going to tell anything we have to say to them in order to back off. And, and it's not their real person it's not them trying to lie to you it's almost like this out-of-body experience you look down and you go what <laughs> and of course they're not having that looking down part and questioning but it's it, it's because of the way the brain has been so compromised it's beyond their control at that time if they have the chemical in the brain and that's why the first step of treating alcohol a uh, severe alcohol use disorder alcoholism is you got to pull the chemical out in order to let the brain start to balance its natural ways of communicating yeah. You know, and I, when I, that's the one question I get from families all the time in my interventions and crisis coaching is how do you know, you know, if the substance abuser in your life is actually telling the truth? And my answer always is if their lips are moving, the odds are nothing coming out is the truth. And I completely agree with the lying, cheating, stealing, and manipulating because as an alcoholic in recovery, what I learned was I was doing that really to protect my family. I didn't want them to know. I was full of shame. I was embarrassed. I So when someone said to me, have you been drinking? My automatic reaction would have been, no, not yet. Yeah, yeah. it will be. You know, and I caution families when they listen to this, because I can I can see a parent now taking, you know, this podcast, sitting them down. You need to listen to Lisa and you're going to they're going to go through and Wait a minute, I don't have 14 drinks uh, you know, a week. I only have 11. I'm not an alcoholic. And I always drink after six o'clock, never during the day. I have a job, you know, and I and I have a life after after my job. And I'm only really drunk when the sun goes down and on weekends. I mean, and I was a sundown drinker. I was a happy hour drinker and I was a weekend alcoholic. I made all this stuff up right. to try to keep people at bay. And the people who love you the most, the people that are closest to you, are the ones who are most impacted by that behavior. So when you hear these things and you listen to this podcast, don't sit the person down and have them listen to it. You listen to it. You're the one who sometimes need to help yourself so you can help the person who suffers the most. So that's a, you know, a piece of advice I give everyone that you need. It's a family disease. And the trauma that's going untreated, you've been impacted by the PTSD that they suffer from, you probably do as well. So moving forward. Really quickly, that is so true, Scott, because the family is deeply affected because they're getting hammered in their stress response. And then they start to develop toxic stress outcomes, which are migraine, stomach ailments, sleep disorders, da-di-da-di-da. And, and that changes them. And so we need to help the family 
understand that and then to your point, get the help they need. I also want to make one point is that it's just not alcoholism that causes this. It can be a night of binge drinking. Maybe you're, you know, just one night you went out and got hammered. And that can result in these same kinds of behaviors, which can result in secondhand drinking impacts on the family. So can alcohol abuse, you know, so to your it's not just we have to make sure people understand it's not just alcoholism. And people will spend an inordinate amount of time going, well, at least they still go to work or well and, and justifying it because they're so afraid of that label instead of question. Do you have a loved one whose behaviors change when they drink? If so, right. that's a problem. Now, the same way we would be searching and scouring the Internet for everything we could find on cancer or what a lump in the breast, we need to go, well, what do we do when the answer is yes? How do we find information? And not yeah. to plug my book, but that is the, the, the reason for my latest book, which is um, a 10th anniversary edition of one I wrote back in 08, 09, called um, 10th anniversary edition, If You Love Me, You'd Stop, What You Really Need to Know When Your Loved One Drinks Too Much. And it, it covers all the science of how you develop a drinking problem, how it escalates, and then what happens to the family and what they can do to change their health, independent of their loved one. And generally, they change. They change the way they can talk about it, the way they can set boundaries and stick with them. <laughs> right. You know, and, and I love that about what you do with your work, because, you know, if you're in a 10th edition, you're not just printing it with a new font, with a new format. You've actually <laughs> you've, you've contemporized the information. And there are a lot of studies out, you know, that that exist today that weren't there 10 years ago. I mean, you mentioned a variety of, you know, from self-medication. You know, we haven't even talked about prescription drugs where people go, well, I'm only doing this because my doctor gave me the prescription. And kids today who have been, you know, with vaping that's going on and kids that have been addicted to gaming and people now addicted to the Internet, whether it be porn or just, you know, can't set their phone down. You know, right, just can't right. set their phone down. So, you know, that whole Internet issue and the phone issue now that's going on uh, is is taking people because we're, we're kind of, I think, inwardly trying to figure out ways to cope. And if you don't look, if you want to learn how to be a triathlete. It's really hard to go on YouTube and watch some <laughs> videos. If you want, look, if, if you could lose weight watching YouTube, I mean, I would do it. It's just mm -hmm. some, you need to have help. You need to have outside, you know, influencers and you need people who are thought leaders and people who have had experience with it. You know, and you talked about it and I talk about it. You know, I need help. Three of the hardest words for the average person to say. OK, so next question for you. The person relapses because their 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 support mechanism, their AA meetings are now on Zoom. They um their ex their gym where they got the an important piece of recovery is shut. So they're they're all their what they used to do to keep themselves well is gone. So sorry. And then just well, when we're thinking about 10 year anniversary, just to add that I liken it to the cell phone when we think of that smartphone of 2007 and how oh my gosh this was amazing compared to the flip phone. We could suddenly text and send an email and take a picture, but compare that to the smartphone of today, 10 years, you know, 12 years later, it's like ugh, night and day. Absolutely. And that's what the Absolutely. research that's in that book is about is what's current now. So. Well, good. And, and don't ever stop doing that because you know, there are not many people who actually will contemporize information about a subject matter and studies are always being updated and studies are moving quicker now. Uh, especially around the substance abuse issue, because so much of a, our country is impacted by it. And, you know, I call it the pandemic within the pandemic now. And now it's now third tier because of what happened with the virus and obviously what happened with, you know, George Floyd and what's mm -hmm. taking place in our country. And what's fascinating is the social model 
of anonymous meetings, the physical going and hearing and touching and hugging and listening to people kind of piss and moan and complain and also listen to the success stories and the people who relapse and come back and share their story. Even though that's being done on Zoom right now, the social model has some of the best outcomes. But even even in Alcoholics Anonymous, this example, 95% of the people who don't continue anything are going to relapse. So having that physical connectivity, which has been taken away, but, you know, Zoom has created some other opportunities for people mm-hmm. who, you know, don't want to go to a meeting. But and I'm and I go to my home group electronically more now than I did physically because it doesn't take the half hour drive over and back and forth. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, we're going to all have to find new ways to deal with it. So moving to the next question, what do you say to someone with a drinking problem other than, hey, set that drink down? Because if you didn't pick it up, you wouldn't have a drinking problem. What do you tell them, Lisa? What I suggest is, first of all, they get really versed in what this is all about. So to understand what the drinking patterns, to understand the risk factors, to understand how somebody develops the disease so that they're calm and they know what they're talking about and they don't get pushed off the topic with that comeback. Yeah, but you didn't, you know, the slicing and dicing and the mincing of words. And then and then I, you know, suggest that they would do it just as if they were helping their loved one find help for cancer. And um, so. You, you, you would you would be well, first of all, here's a here's a statement. I don't know if you're aware of how much your behaviors change when you drink. But last night and you separate the behavior from the person, not how much they drink, not you're an alcoholic, not you're an alcohol abuser. But last night at around eight o'clock, here was what was was happening. And you leave it and you don't say it's because you were drinking. You just say your behaviors change when you drink and here's what happened. Then you could say something like, you know, this has gotten so, so, so much and so frequent. I'm scared. And just as if you had cancer and I were scared, I would start Googling and trying to figure out what do we do? And then you could say, and here's some of the things that I've discovered. I would really appreciate if you would take a look. Maybe we can talk about them. But again, I am not you saying to them, I am not a doctor. I can't medically diagnose you. So this isn't about that. It's just your behaviors change. And when they change, it makes it so awful or whatever you want to want to call it. And then lastly is to talk about the name of what happens to them. And that's where I coined that term secondhand drinking back in 09, because to draw the connection with secondhand smoking, when that Surgeon General report came out and said that cigarette smoke causes these harms to people within its sphere, asthma, migraine, you know, um, heart problems, uh, uh, lung problems, the host of physical concerns, people then got the confidence to say, okay, you smoke, that's okay, I can't control that, but I can control whether I'm going to be in that sphere of the cigarette smoke. So then we suddenly was not in the houses. It wasn't in cars. It wasn't in you know hotels, restaurants, et cetera. That's the same thing with this idea. When I'm trying to cope with your drinking behaviors, not understanding it, that causes me stress. Stress is what makes me sick. It's the reason I have anxiety. I have depression. I have stomach problems. I can't sleep at night. I get you know, uh, uh, racing heartbeat. I have a locked in neck because I'm so stressed. So that's, that is an impact on me. And so I need to take care of my health. And when we start to say this secondhand drinking has a very real cause and effect, we can then start to say, okay, not that you're going to stop anybody's right to drink, but you can start to say, 
I can't be around the drinking in a way that's constructive. That you come back to what it's doing to you instead of always, well, you, you, you. The way I'm coping this is causing this toxic stress impact on me, and I need to change the way I cope with this because that is my health. Makes sense? That, it, well, it does to me, and, and what I want to do, you know, and the thing is this, I, you know, I live, eat, and breathe this like you do, and I hear when I listen to you say the things that I say differently or the same way, I realize, you know, it's like, you know, when I used to teach this class with people coming out of jail and prison, we'd say to them, you need to go get an education. And and we found out that people who never have gone to school, who don't know that just to get on a bus to go to the school to fill out the application, who to talk to, that you people who do not know who are in this complete strange territory, they need help. And that's where some of the hand holding and support can go. So our time is just about up. So tell people how they reach you why they should reach you, and what they need to do next after they've listened to this. Okay. So um, reach me at Lisa F at breakingthecycles.com. And you can also just go to the website if you forget, and you'll find the contact information there. As far as uh, what to do next, I would urge you, and this is not to sell books. I make $1.32 a book, so it's not that. And the Kindle version is much less, so it's only $5.99, I think. And that's probably discounted, too. But to get this overall picture, and it's and it's written with – it's the book I wished I would have had when I started this journey. So it, it's to take this science and bring it down to something you can – okay, wow, got it. Okay, kind of that aha moment. And then um, – but you don't have to do that first. Call me. Because I get so, you know, you're, you're, when people find the half empty bottles or the last night was so horrific or, um, you know, they're just, I can't do it anymore. They need to just talk somebody um, at that moment to just kind of, oh, and know that they're not alone and know that there is hope and that it really can be different for both their loved one and for themselves. So you, you've invited people to call you, but I don't think you've given out your phone number. Do you mind doing that? I haven't. And, and, and the only reason I do it the other way is then when I can see the number coming in. So if I've made the phone, if I've made the appointment, I know that number is coming in at 11 o'clock on Thursday and I answer it. Sometimes, you know, with all the because um, it's all to my cell phone now, um, the uh, and I do Skype and Zoom and I do WhatsApp for people who are internationally. So it's not a, a call for them, a call charge. Um, so that's why I don't just give out the phone number because it would be difficult to know. Is this just a prank, not a prank call, but what do you call them? Um, uh, robo calls, robo calls. Right. Cause I get a lot well, of I, as we all yeah, do. I, yeah. Yeah. I give my, I give my number all the time. Cause I'm one of those people just to me, when I see a strange number, it's, it's an opportunity to maybe help somebody into the treatment, but I understand that you're not hard to find. You know, yeah, you can and Google you and you can find it. I already have another call going. And when you reach out that one moment and somebody doesn't answer, it might be the last time you try because you got brave enough to do it once. So right. they're often more brave to, to start it by typing it, telling me, you know, what's been going on. And then we get in and we have a, and they get some flavor of me. And then we have in the exchange of emails and we have a phone call. So it's it's not that I'm not trying to give it, obviously. But um, OK, yeah. well, I have I pushed as hard as I could. I just want the listener to know that. So 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 Lisa, um, you know, uh, we, we our normal sign off is we invite our guests. I don't know if it was in the email or not to, to share an affirmation that they're one of their favorites. If you have one that you'd like to share with us, if, not to put you on the spot, but I have a quick one here if you don't. Okay, but, please, you do. Yeah. OK. Anyway, so uh, I'm going to uh, we're going to sign off. I'm going to just uh, again, my name's Scott H. Silverman. This is Happy Hour 
Michael Moore is uh, my my cohort, my partner, the producer, the brains in the outfit, and he's the one that makes sure that we always look good no matter what. And this segment will be out very soon. But uh, here's the uh, quick affirmation that I looked up, and that is, uh, I am successful in all areas of my life, and every day, in every way, I get better and better. That's great. That's really great. Yes. So, Michael, do you want to give us a send off? Because I know I always forget something. And that's why, you know, being much younger than I am, it's easy for you to remember what I forget. Well, I just love listening to you talk, Scott. I mean, <laughs> hearing you do interviews, I'm really sitting back and letting you do the interview and taking control. It just it really uh, it's, it's refreshing. And Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today uh, for all your social media, your website and email and things like that will be in the show notes so the listeners can go to the show notes to find that information i'll also include where to find lisa's books so uh that's about it uh scott if you want to go ahead and say uh goodbye we can if you have anything else to say or lisa we, we can end this in the show i'm at least i'm gonna let you say goodbye to everybody and tell I, them to have a good time thank you so much both of you for this opportunity and and to your listeners um there really is help and hope. So uh, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to help you with what I can.